Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Phoenix Business Radio. I'm your host, Karen Nowicki, and I'd like to welcome you to AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and technology in Arizona and beyond. Broadcasted monthly, AZ TechCast invites leading experts to have conversations about what's happening in the tech sector across the state of Arizona. From regional news to innovative startups, companies, and emerging technologies, AZ TechCast covers the critical issues and economic trends propelling the state's growing tech ecosystem. And I'd like to thank Arizona Commerce Authority, AZ TechCast 2020 Innovation Sponsor. The Arizona Commerce Authority is the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. The Commerce Authority uses a three-pronged approach to advance the overall economy, recruit, grow, and create. I'd also like to thank the 2020 Tech Advocate sponsor, JDH Insights. A leader in coaching and executive development, JDH Insights is committed to helping organizations cultivate and leverage the most important and complex asset, their humans. JDHinsights.com to enhance leadership and improve team dynamics to take your business to the next level. And with that, please help me give a warm welcome to today's featured guest. We have James Bates, CEO of AdvyNow Medical. Hello, sir. Thanks for Hello. being here. And Greg Leeming, Research and Program Director at Intel Labs. Hi, Greg. Hi. Please tell me Hi. I did pronounce your last name correct after we practiced it. We did. I did indeed. Good. Thank you. And also welcome to our conversation, my co-host, Steve Zalstra, President and CEO of Arizona Technology Council. Hi, Stephen. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. For sure. Right before we all settle into a holiday, hopefully uh, all of us are getting to have a little bit of breathing space. I think we've all earned it this year. In today's TechCast conversation, these distinguished experts are going to shed the light on the ways artificial intelligence will change our personal lives, the workplace, and the world. Today's featured guests will also share insight on how businesses, organizations, and government agencies must navigate the complex landscape of AI and other tech advances in order to stay competitive. Artificial intelligence is impacting the future of virtually every industry and transforming how humans and machines work together. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Thank you again, Greg and James, for joining us. Would love to start with both of you. Actually, I would love to, for Stephen to share a little bit about um, AZ Tech Council as well. But let's start with Greg and James. Introduce yourselves to our listening audience. Who are you? What role do you play? And tell us about your business and the great work that you're doing on behalf of our community and the folks you serve. Who'd like to go first? I'd be happy to. Thank you, Greg. So, uh, Greg Leeming, um, I'm an Arizona resident. I live in Goodyear. I work for Intel, for Intel Labs, which is uh, Intel's research wing, uh, where uh, I oversee uh, many of our academic engagements. Uh, uh, most of the funding for academic engagements that, that Intel provides are funneled through the labs. Our responsibility is to bring new technologies into the corporation. So working with academia is one way that we do that. And I'm responsible for artificial intelligence and autonomous driving uh, in our groups that uh, oversee those engagements. One of the things I'm doing in the state, uh, the governor set up the Institute of Automated Mobility in 2018 uh, as an organization to provide technical guidance for how the state 
uh, ought to embrace uh, autonomous vehicles, and I'm acting as the technical director for that uh, entity. So that's me. And how long have you been with Intel? I've been with Intel for 20 years. A long time. A I, long time. A long Seems time. like a week. Anyway, <laughs> right? 20 years. Yes. I, I got bit by the uh, business bug uh, when I was working as an, an intern in a Kyrene school district and Intel partnership. We opened the first of its kind, you know, community school where Intel donated the land. I'm, I'm sure you are familiar with that. And it was at that time I was ready to become the next principal. But I I was so turned on by what Intel was doing and just the, the culture and everything. And I went and shift my major, uh, my master's degree from organizational, or excuse me, from educational leadership to organizational development so that I could make sure that I was available to step into business when I was ready for that. So I'm, I'm really grateful for Intel for that introduction and shift in my career. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. James, please yeah. introduce yourself. Yeah, Stephen. Um, both AdbyNow and Intel are um, members of the Tech Council and very active members of the Tech Council. We have a board member from Intel and Abby now is involved with our MedTech committee. And uh, so very good engagement in the community as well. Uh, so pleased to hear that, which is why, of course, we wanted to make sure we had a segment speecher, featured with both of you. James, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Karen. My name is James Bates. I am the founder and CEO of AdbyNow Medical. Um, I've actually been in the high technology field for 25 years. I'm, I'm an old guy here. But throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to be involved with the world's first digital cell phone chipsets, um, have an opportunity to live overseas for 12 years and found international operations that grew to billions of dollars of business. When I moved to Arizona, I had the opportunity to run Freescale which uh, of course competed with Intel in, in certain areas in the semiconductor space. But there we focused on all of the technologies that enable a car to be self-driving. So we worked on vision components. We worked on radar components. We worked on the components that gives the car the ability to steer or to brake and all of the algorithms and infrastructure behind that to create, you know, if you will, a sensor fusion. That, that experience was, was fantastic. When, Freescale was sold to NXP. I, I retired a little bit and I had a two-year non-compete, which meant I was kind of out of the semi-world and I was out of the automotive world. Golfing and, what that and, meant, and painting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could play golf, but I'm just really not that good at it. And, and, and so I, I started looking at what to do and, and healthcare really caught my eye. Because as anyone who knows, you go into a healthcare facility you spend the majority of your time filling out forms and answering questions and taking measurements. And actually physicians spend about two thirds of their time doing clerical activity. And so the idea was, can we, do, can we take similar types of technology that are used in self-driving vehicles and bring them inside medical offices to completely automate all of the things that is quite frankly, clerical work or repetitive work inside a medical office? And that is what Abby now does. So our solution completely automates the medical visit from the beginning to the end. We have an augmented reality piece that helps people take medical measurements anywhere. And then an artificial intelligence piece that actually collects the information from the patient and fills all the documentation for the doctors, the front office, as well as the back office. So it's, uh, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, we are very much still a startup. But uh, we're very excited with the growth we're having and the partnership with the Arizona Tech Council. 
I visited your website uh, when I was taking a look at everything that Jill had sent over in preparation for this segment, and and you really are in a lot of different serving a lot of different aspects of the medical field. Can, can yeah, you... I mean, it, it, the amazing thing is that if you if you want to automate it, um, you actually have to have a full end to end digital experience, and when you do that, it, it requires everything from a check in or a payment on the front end to asking the questions and taking measurements, and then on the back end, documenting and billing codes and and follow up with the patient. That's the only way that you can truly have all of the documentation done for the provider. So it's a it's a big task. Probably if I knew how big it was before I started, maybe I wouldn't have started. <laughs> but the naivety was was probably a good thing. And uh, we're going down the path. So it's a, it's a fantastic uh, opportunity to be part of the artificial intelligence revolution uh, that's going on right now. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, sure. So uh, just for our listeners, the Arizona Tech Council is a statewide trade association. Uh, we represent over 800 uh, member companies across uh, Arizona, from uh, literally from Douglas to Kingman. And uh, we do public policy advocacy on behalf of the tech industry. We do pre-COVID about 160 events a year. We have a magazine, a newsletter. We negotiate lower cost products and services for our members. And as I mentioned earlier, we have about 13 committees that are made up of our members in various uh, technical areas primarily. So a end-to-end uh, -end trade association representing uh, tech companies. I'd like to start with the first question, if I may, uh, Karen. You know, I used to um, live in Pittsburgh, and some believe AI started in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon in the 50s. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a unique technology that in many ways really wasn't enabled the way it is today until the internet appeared, right? And, you know, it's, it's described as human-like intelligence that can reason and perceive and learn and process natural language and all kinds of other things. Can, uh, can we start maybe with Greg and give us a few examples of where AI does those kinds of things? I'm going to start out with the word classification. And I'm going to have, make this a theme of my comments today. AI is a combination of different activities. And so let's think about the human brain and, and how it operates. Well, a lot of the brain is dedicated to classification type activities. So speech recognition, visual recognition, etc. You, you can, everybody in the audience can do this. You can sort of blankly look around the room, turn your brain off as much as you can, and you will realize that your brain is automatically recognizing all sorts of things around you. It's very, very good at classifying things, figuring out what fits in, in this set versus that set. So this word that I just heard was the rather than though or something, et cetera. And the breakthroughs that have occurred in artificial intelligence over the last five to 10 years due to a, an algorithm called deep learning primarily, and there are other thrusts in, in uh, artificial intelligence as well, the computer now is very good at classification. And you'll, you'll notice this when you communicate uh, with uh, over the telephone with a company, et cetera, and how good the speech recognition has gotten. Or when you uh, interface with uh, Amazon Echo, you know, Alexa, et cetera. 
and just how accurately uh, those systems can now understand what it is that you are trying to communicate. And that all comes down to the computer's now ability to very accurately classify uh, words to understand you know, what you really meant. So if you had a, uh, a, a Southern accent versus a British accent versus a, a great Boston accent like I have, um, the, the systems can still understand all the nuances involved and understand, uh, like we are very good at, what it is you are trying to say. Now, when it comes to uh, vehicles, et cetera, the, one of the, the major breakthroughs there are in perception. And so can a car, an automatic car, perceive what's around it with high accuracy and then deal with what's there? But the key is being able to understand that what's in front of it is a car rather than a shadow, is a pedestrian, et cetera, and with all the different lighting conditions, et cetera, being able to do that with high accuracy. And that's what deep learning has allowed us now to do to classify things. And so we'll talk about this throughout my, uh, my, my discussion here. It's a great measure for understanding what AI is capable of today and what it's not capable of. So think about the human brain again. We, we have these, this, what I would call the front end, your visual cortex, your auditory, auditory cortex, et cetera, that, that allow you to understand, to sense, and understand what's happening in the world around you but they don't allow you to reason. And a lot of the rest of your brain is dedicated to being able to reason about things. So we talked about blankly looking at stuff. Yeah, you're recognizing stuff. If you want to interpret what's there, though, all sorts of other activities uh, get teed up in the brain and you start thinking about, oh, that's a light switch. And if I go over to it, I could turn it on. I could do whatever. There's all sorts of other activities that go into being intelligent. And we're not very good at those yet. So you know, current AI, again, is is... Uh, it has allowed us to classify things. There's lots of research now going into common sense reasoning and all the other aspects, and they'll play out probably over the next 20, 30 years, 10, 20, 30 years. But for now, think about classification, and we'll keep talking about it, and it'll give you a measure for understanding what artificial intelligence is capable of today. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you with that. Thank you, Greg. Do you want to add to that, James? That sure. was a great definition. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if the, uh, artificial intelligence concepts have been around for a, a very, very long time. Um, and the definition from Carnegie Mellon back from 50 years ago, it definitely it, it is still alive and well today, I believe. Ultimately, um, for the non-technical person, artificial intelligence and what they actually see in things today, it many times equates to automation. Now, of course, the classification, as Greg talked about, is key for any automation system to actually work. So if you think about anything we do today, we are seeing chatbots pop up everywhere. And, you know, whether it's a, are you happy with this website? It's a customer service. It's, you know, it's our, have you seen your doctor? Or let me collect symptoms from you, you know. Chatbots are everywhere and they are exploding. And especially with the pandemic, as, as people need to engage and collect information and fill out forms, that's where you're seeing this. And the classification that Greg was talking about is how does the AI know which question to ask next? Is it actually interpreting and perceiving and classifying the intent of the user? So from, from a layman's perspective, artificial intelligence can equate to automation. And so the interesting thing for us is what does automation actually mean to us? 
is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I know there's many different conversations about that out there, but ultimately it's going to happen. And, and you can think about it as this is potentially the fourth industrial revolution. And AI is going to fundamentally change the way we work. And that classifying of the different items by a digital machine, what does that mean to the future of the worker and the future of industries? And I think that'd be a, a great topic for us for us to go into. As you're both talking. As you're both talking, I'm thinking about my days in uh, the school district, working not only with teachers when I was an assistant principal, but also teaching third grade, all of the if this, then that scenarios that we used to create, right? Whether it was a contingency plan or some sort of study set that we were working with, I would often propose if this, then that, and we'd work through those. When I'm thinking about AI and classification, I can't even imagine how that opens Pandora's box around all the capabilities and the things that you have to put into place because of the intelligence piece around this. I'll take that out. Absolutely. It's interesting when you think about how we will all be impacted over the next five to 10 years. Any task that is repetitive in any way and an if-then type of concept is repetitive, right? If this happens, you will always do this. Now, that's not really AI. That's kind of a little bit of a more of a, just a defined system. AI would be, there are these thousand entries to it and the nuance of this means this. And however, for us in, in the layman world, the way we would actually look at, at this is anything that is repetitive in our jobs will go away over the space of the next five to 10 years. If you're spending every day opening up emails and if you are doing any type of administration or accounting, you know, taking this, copying it into software such that you can pay a bill or anything that is repetitive like that will most likely not exist and that job won't. So if you think about it as we are engaging in this journey through this fourth industrial revolution, there are many comparisons with the second, you know, and the second for those who are trying to figure out how we're, how I'm classifying it. Um, that's really electrical mechanization of, of the early late 1800s and early 1900s, where there were these huge factories and seamstresses that used to provide supplemental income to their families were actually being unemployed by the thousands. Why? Because a cotton gin opened up and it was creating tons and tons of material that could be turned into clothing for very cheaply. So the amount of money that people were willing to pay for cloth or pay for a dress went down dramatically. And so now those extremely skilled seamstresses were out of a job. So there was an adjustment that had to happen in the worldwide economy at that time for people to survive. And as we're going over the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to have a similar type of aspect. This time it's in the white collar world where a lot of things that we do every day that we've been trained and we follow an if-then type of scenario and even more complex is going to go away either through some type of robotic process automation or artificial intelligence implementation. Karen, I want to mention something and then uh, ask Greg a question. Um, we had uh, Mark Cuban here in Arizona, um, I guess it was in 2019, and he spoke to a very large group of people in the warehouse district. Um, it was an entrepreneurial kind of event. And as you know, he's an entrepreneur extraordinaire. 
But um, he told the audience that he had been reading uh, several books on artificial intelligence. And he made a point that every business leader in the country should be learning about AI and machine learning, that it would so fundamentally change the way work happens that if, if you don't understand it, you're going to be left behind. And I'm wondering what you think about that, Craig. Yeah, we'll keep with the classification theme here, but let me just introduce a few other things and, and, and uh, I'll, I'll sort of, I think, provide you with a really good answer to the question here. So uh, artificial intelligence, James was suggesting, is emerging along with a number of other complementary technologies, and they're all really going to impact the future world. And so um, AI is dependent on, on advanced computing and, and the fact that computing now is available everywhere and the power that you're being provided is going up and up. It also depends on lots of data, et cetera, being available. Uh, and so big data processing and the cloud and all these other advances, et cetera, are all in combination enabling changes that, uh, that AI is a, is a significant part of. And so robotics and automation, et cetera, all are being helped by AI. So, so imagine a production line in which uh, you had a human that was looking for defects, et cetera. Uh, and it was critical that you had a human there. You needed that sort of our level of intelligence to detect them. Well, going forward now, AI being able to, you know, sort of add this sort of classification capability to a rope, you know, to a perception system can do equally well as a human. And so those jobs are going to be displaced, et cetera. You've got to understand what uh, aspects of AI are emerging that are going to impact your business. And really it's this whole classification thing. You need to understand what portions of your business are dependent on classification-like tasks, i.e. Uh, being able to, to detect the, the nuanced differences between two different things, et cetera. Uh, and those are the things that are going to be impacted. There's lots of entrepreneurialism out there. Uh, those are the things that are going to be impacted. So you have to sort of look at your business and understand what aspects of it are classification-based and you can predict that those are the ones that are going to that you're going to be challenged with with by, by competitors, et cetera, who are going to adopt technologies that implement that classification type of those activities. So I think that's what businesses really need to focus in on. Have a measure, and I think this is a good one, of what impact you're likely to see over the next five years. And those are the things that are going to be impacted. Now it may be very they may be hidden behind other things. For instance, uh, we're going to talk about the medical industry here as one of the questions. Think about radiology. You know, what is that? Okay. It is uh, being able to look at x-rays and, and other uh, CAT scans and things and find in them things that the untrained eye probably won't see that suggest that you might have a tumor, et cetera. That is, that is classification. So it's classifying this thing that you see, you know, it's very maybe faint thing or something that you need lots of training to see uh, and realizing that it's a tumor or not a tumor or whatever, those activities are going to be impacted by this technology. Machines are getting to the point where they can do it as well as, and, and as time goes on, better than humans. And so it's all those sorts of activities. And so looking at your business and understanding what are similar to that, you know, where, uh, where are you going to be uh, detecting slight differences between things, et cetera. Those are the things you have to be aware of and realize that uh, those are the things you're going to have to adapt to. And, and uh, 
and, and begin to utilize uh, to, to help you maintain your competitive advantage. So. Craig, I want to mention uh, a really good example of what you're talking about. We have a member down in Tucson that um, is a, essentially an optics company. We have about 75 members who are in the optics and photonics business. And they developed an optical system using AI that looks down at a uh, conveyor belt of ore that's passing over it. And it can detect small differences in the change of the shape and size of the aggregate and notify the operator when the grinder that's grinding this ore up has to be sharpened just by subtle changes in the shape and size of the ore. Pretty cool, uh, very pragmatic kind of uh, application of AI, but uh, a lot of our members are starting to do those kinds of things. James, let's have you speak to healthcare a little bit more specifically. Uh, you, you've uh, been with Advi now for, you said two years, is that right? Um, four. Four, sorry, four years. And now with COVID and, of course, uh, you know, the quarantine and more te- the greater need for telemedicine, that's just kind of where mine goes. But tell us a little bit more about how AI is changing the delivery of healthcare. Where else are you seeing it? And I would imagine four years in now, you're leading the pack. We like to think so. We still have not seen any other company that's out there trying to automate the end-to-end medical visit. So from that perspective, you know, healthcare itself is a very unique industry. Uh, It's highly regulated, highly litigious, and on top of that, um, highly manual. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity for efficiencies that fall within the purview of, uh, of an exact definition of AI and outside the purview of an exact definition of AI. So uh, just keeping with Greg's definition, because it's, it's, a, it's a nice definition. If you can create an exact classification for every possible illness and illness combination, then the AI would automatically diagnose better than any human can. The, the big battle out there in the medical space is how do you create that classification? Now, the, the deep learning guys like the Amazons of the world or the Microsofts or the Googles of the world, they have an approach of we'll take existing data and we're going to use that data to create classifications of illnesses based off of hundreds of millions of medical encounters, you know, medical doctor visits. The problem with doing that is the data that's in our medical records is usually not accurate. And the FDA does not look at a a medical visit that was done by a doctor or even a million medical visits that was done by a doctor as justification that the algorithm is accurate. So that kind of confusion there is why AI is not more widely adopted in healthcare today. And even in places like images where you have an image and you actually have the annotations of the image directly, you know, by a radiologist looking at it and putting their diagnosis on it, even in those situations, the the FDA is still very hesitant, although they have finally approved some, you know, software as a medical device type of approvals in that space. So the approach that, that, that we have taken is actually to develop a natural language processing engine that reads all research literature 
in medical textbooks and extracts the relationships from that to become, you know, through our, our team of providers, that gives us the base start of our AI. Now, the beauty of that platform is that we are also collecting every image, every sound, we're predicting an illness, we're having a provider select an illness or doctor select an illness, and then a treatment and a doctor is confirming that, and then we see the patient outcome. That's what is going to create a baseline for AI to be used in healthcare in a widespread manner beyond images and sounds, which, you know, that, that area is growing pretty heavily. So we're very excited about that. Um, we expect within the next five to 10 years, uh, there will be no human that will see a doctor without AI assist. And it just won't happen. Um, from a, You'll never be able to get liability insurance as a doctor, you know, malpractice insurance without it. And, and we see it starting to go down that path now um, where you get discounts for using certain artificial intelligence tools that, you know, look for highly litigious potential misses. So from that standpoint, it's a it's it's starting, but it it is it will take a few more years, I believe. What we do see in healthcare in a in a more immediate fashion is what I would call digitization of the paperwork. Now, COVID has fundamentally changed the world here. Um, my system again gets digitally end to end before COVID. Um, the patients that were willing to do all of that at home, even if it's a nice, very easy interface, was not high, right? The younger population, sure. The older population, yeah, I'll just have, you know, the front desk do it like I always do. Post-COVID, there's like no choice. So doctors are, cho- are forcing their students, or not their students, excuse me, their patients, to go through and actually complete all the paperwork before they come in. In fact, you can't even walk in the front door until you have all of those questionnaires completed. Now, they're very burdensome to the patients. So now from an AI engagement perspective, the AI is maybe 20% as burdensome as the current lengthy questionnaires that people are being asked to fill out. So you're, it's 20% of the previous nightmare of paperwork, and it's becoming very, very easy to adopt. So a front-end chatbot in healthcare is going to become an area where I see um, very wide adoption in, in the near term. Another area in healthcare, which is actually um, really starting to take off, is what happens in the back office. So insurance companies pay every bill based off of a code that they receive. And there are artificial intelligence companies that are using deep learning to actually predict how good hospitals are on how well they treat patients based off of the codes, the length of time, and how many times a patient comes back. And you can get all of that information just by looking at what they call the claims data or the insurance claims information. And so that is real today. And so when you go to a hospital, the amount of money they're receiving for a surgery for you many times is highly dependent on how they rank compared to other hospitals around them. So this can either bring everyone down to a lower common denominator or help bring people up. We'll have to see exactly how that plays out over, over the next few years. But that is happening today in, in healthcare. Uh, just one last comment on, on um, you know, it, it, Steve's question. I, I think what the message really was, uh, was every business is now a tech business. There is no business 
that will not require technology. And you can think of traditionally what people would call blue collar businesses, maybe construction, maybe you know, manufacturing, all of these type of businesses that have been very manual will need to adopt artificial intelligence components to remain competitive going forward. So every business is a tech business. Now, does that CEO need to become an expert in, in AI? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think they need to look at their business, figure out what's repetitive and try things that are on the market. And the interesting thing with the status of the ramp and AI that we're in is a lot of people are making claims, which quite frankly, aren't true, <laughs> right? And so, so there's a lot of businesses that are a little bit gun shy on, hey, I'm going to start using this quality assurance program that says it's going to find every single defect because, you know, they don't work all the time. And I would just, you know, as a, as a word of advice for the listeners, um, don't fall into the trap of looking for perfection. Because in any industry, the first products that come out, just like the very first MS-DOS computer that came out, you know, 50 years ago or whatever, it's not going to be perfect. But what it will be is progressively improving and better than what you've got today. And the efficiencies that will happen over the next few years, you'll have an opportunity to participate in them. So just that last comment as well. Karen, I just wanted to mention another example of a member uh, in the in the medical field that um, is using AI, but to make James's point, not for the public yet, but um, the University of Arizona is a very active member of the Tech Council. And uh, a professor there and his um, graduate students have been working for years now and have perfected a device, again, it's an optical device, um, but it uses AI. And you know, uh, when you go, uh, if you wear glasses like I do, you go into the doctor and you have to look through all those lenses and you know make those comparisons uh, that Greg was talking about earlier, right? Well, with AI, optical systems can do that. And uh, they have perfected a machine, they've got to get FDA approval yet, that you, you look into a little scope, and in five seconds, it gives you your prescription. And, you know, they've compared it to thousands and thousands of real prescriptions, and it's unbelievably accurate. It's actually more accurate than this, you know, human thing that we do. So what a great example, right? And that's going to fundamentally change that industry in a very profound way, right? You spend a half an hour in the in their office. Now you can probably spend five minutes and you're done, particularly with all the stuff that Abby now is doing. We have a, another show called Legitimate with uh, Rochelle and Mike Poulton. They are attorneys uh, here in the Valley. And we had their most recent live broadcast yesterday. And they were talking again because of the quarantine, how, uh, how, Finally, attorneys, their peers are having to show up with the tech background, and it's now actually becoming, you know, the expectation that folks are prepared for and the court systems are prepared for tech being a big piece of how we're going to interact with the court system and our attorneys. And both of them are very tech savvy. They're like, finally, everybody else is, you know, come, ready to come alongside us because they've been forced to. And to the point we're making today, again, it's fun, the quarantine and, and COVID, this era has fundamentally changed 
how I think we're doing just about everything. I want to uh, throw it back to Greg, if I could. Back in November, our most recent uh, podcast for AZ TechCast, we had uh, Nikola Motor Company, Andrew Christian on with us. And we also had Dominic Papa with um, Arizona Commerce Authority. We're speaking specifically around autonomous vehicles. I would love to hear more from you about how AI, how Intel specifically is fostering the next generation of artificial, artificial intelligence. And I'm finding it fascinating that everything that, that James is saying with the medical field, I've been learning as we've had these conversations in previous episodes and, and imagining how it is to now be a driver behind the wheel and why AI is, is so much more safe for us than, than you know, Karen Nowicki out there doing it for, for herself. All right. So I mentioned earlier that you know, AI is one component or one technology of a whole number of technologies that are maturing to provide this highly automated sort of new world that uh, we're all going to live in. <laughs> and um, you know, Intel, uh, we want to provide compute for pretty much any application. And so, uh, of course, uh, AI and all the other aspects that go into developing these new technologies will depend on compute. And so we're focused on how to provide that compute uh, that, that provides the most efficient processing, uh, that has architecture that supports AI, et cetera. So uh, to, to do that, we have to understand all the aspects of AI, all the aspects of the other technologies, et cetera, that are, that are impacting our future uh, and, uh, and architect the products that we provide uh, that uh, are going to allow them to be implemented as efficiently as possible. So that's what we'll say about Intel there. Let's talk about autonomous vehicles and what's going on in the Institute of Automated Mobility. So this was set up by the governor. Again, you've got all these complex technologies that are emerging. How does the state navigate uh, all of them and understand what it ought to be doing to allow autonomous vehicles to be deployed? And first of all, why would you want to deploy autonomous vehicles? Uh, are they going to help you with efficiency? Well, just replacing one car with another type of car isn't going to have that impact. You're still going to have all those cars on the road. Where they're likely to have huge impact is on safety. There are 38,000 deaths in the U.S. per year, something like 2 million accidents per year. Um, and much of those are caused by human uh, frailties. Uh, but we, we tend not to be paying attention. We, we tend to do silly things like drive when uh, we're intoxicated and um, or when we're distracted by other things, etc. AVs are not going to have that issue. They're going to be sort of on the ball as long as the technology is good enough, etc. And it's, and it's getting there all the time. And so they're not going to suffer from uh, those issues that uh, humans introduce to the driving process. That's where the real advantage for, of AVs is going to be felt. Two, they are potentially going to provide cheaper transportation. You don't need to have a person driving, et cetera. So for bus routes out to communities that aren't served now, et cetera, there's the likelihood that these technologies will uh, be economically feasible uh, and therefore will be, you'll be able to provide services to folks that couldn't get them in the past. And there are all sorts of other aspects to it as well regarding pedestrians and the like. And so what we're doing in the IAM is figuring out what the state should be doing to enable these technologies to be introduced. So uh, you want to let the, the companies that are developing them, you, want to, you don't want to, in, in, you know, to inhibit their uh, creativity, et cetera, 
Uh, you want to allow them to develop the technologies. So how do you do that and provide the monitoring and the sort of the measuring of what they're introducing, et cetera, so that they can be introduced safely? Well, that's where the state has to step in. And so we're um, working at some at, at a few intersections in the greater Phoenix area that have been instrumented and looking at how we can measure very accurately what the interaction between vehicles are and how they impact safety, et cetera. And with that, once we have that monitoring set up in the state, and you can do it quite cost-effectively because you can use the existing cameras and, and the like, you'll be able to see not only what impact humans are having on each other, we're going to learn a lot from this, but as these vehicles get introduced, what impact they're having and provide feedback, et cetera, and work with the companies and all of those that are involved in this to make sure that they get introduced as you know very safely. And so you're going to see this technology begin to emerge. Uh, you already you know you may have already technology in your cars that you know uh, blind spot uh, assist and all sorts of other technologies that are beginning to emerge. You'll begin to, you'll, you'll continue to see uh, you know a progression of new technologies provided, and ultimately your you know the automobiles will then be fully autonomous. Um, it's not all going to happen over the next six months. As that occurs, you're going to want to be monitoring more and more uh, to make sure that uh, everything is being implemented uh, uh, smoothly and safely. And uh, you know that's what we're focused on. And there's lots of artificial intelligence involved in this. It's all perception. We're using uh, these sensors, et cetera, to perceive what's going on on the roadways uh, and to use that then to, uh, to, to understand how better to, uh, you know, to, to actually allow these technologies to be implemented so that they're done you know, with, with high safety, et cetera. So I think there's going to be a huge advantage from it all. Uh, I think the roads will be a lot safer. And by the way, there are, I, I mentioned efficiency before, there are other ways that we can use AI on the transportation system to increase efficiency too and make sure that you're not uh, uh, in huge traffic jams all the time. So uh, over the next 10, 20 years, you'll see all these technologies really emerge. And some of them you may see there's already robo-taxi service provided by Waymo in Chandler, Arizona, et cetera. So the, you know, the technologies are right, they're getting there but it's still going to take a while for them to be fully implemented. And I think you'll see some really significant and very welcoming, welcomed uh, improvements that occur mostly on the safety side. Greg, just a follow-up question. Um, we have a number of companies here in town, Avnet and um, uh, Intel and others that are focused on the internet of things. And um, mm -hmm. I, I believe um, Intel's, sort of center of excellence for IoT is here. Benchmark is another company here in town. How important is AI to the internet of things, right? Where we're connecting everything to everything. It's very important. Let's, let's stay with autonomous vehicles. And so one of the ways that you're going to make them safer is as you're measuring all this information about what's going on on the roadways, et cetera, and all sorts of ways to do it. You can use crowdsourcing, all sorts of other techniques. You want to provide that information so that it can be used. So, uh, say you're coming to an intersection and there's a car that's uh, that's blind to you because there's a building in the way. The future will allow you to detect it through these systems and then communicate to all the other cars that you know here's all the traffic around you. And of course, that's likely to make things quite a bit safer. Uh, the Internet of Things is going to be critical here. You're going to need compute. You, you need to you need to provide that information in you know in in very short periods of time. I mean, it, within a second or so, because otherwise uh, you may miss the opportunity to avoid an accident. 
So the internet of things is going to be critical here. You're going to have lots of edge compute, et cetera, spread all over the, uh, you know, all over our environments um, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that will be used to, you know, to tie to the sensing systems and be used to, to interpret what's there uh, and then provide that information back so that uh, you end up uh, you know, with uh, this extra safety factor that you're adding to the whole equation. So you're going to see all sorts of devices, et cetera, uh, emerging uh, that use artificial intelligence to sense, to, to help you understand what's going on around you, and that are going to be connected through this Internet of Things and provide you with uh, all sorts of uh, new information and th that can be you know, used to make you safer, to make you more efficient, et cetera. There's no question that, yeah, even in this age of AI being mostly a sort of a a classification technology, all sorts of ways that the Internet of Things, et cetera, can be utilized. As we begin to really crack the whole common sense reasoning side of intelligence, et cetera, just imagine all the, you know, having all the sensing out there, et cetera, and, uh, you know, how it can be utilized uh, to, to help you in all sorts of ways and having computers interface with you and help you with all sorts of things. The, the impact is going to be huge. A again, that is not AI today. That is research subject, uh, right. and and that but they will emerge over the next probably next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, and uh, you know your world is going to be very different then. And I, I to me, you know it, the potential is for it to be much better than it is today, much safer, uh, and uh, you know, a, a more um, uh, exciting and, and sort of uh, wonderful life. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Greg. I'm thinking about our students, right? We were celebrating in the gr green room, so to speak, before we went on air about uh, Steve's son, you know, starting to reach some of his lifelong dreams. I've got a 13-year-old at home who's, you know, at home right now doing online schooling, wants to be an engineer, if not the pro baseball player, right? That that tween age kind of uh, mindset. Uh, how can we encourage uh, this next generation of, of workers um, it's obviously in STEM, you know, Stephen and the Arizona Tech Council um, are heavily involved and invested in working with the SciTech Institute to further K-12 STEM education. I get the pleasure of hosting or not hosting, but producing that show here as well. And we're having these same kinds of conversations with high school and middle school kids as the co-host with Kelly Green so that we can continue to say this is this is of critical importance that we wrap our brains and our activities around technology and, and the way in which we do manufacturing and everything else. Uh, how, how would you recommend, whether it's a, a high school student, maybe even elementary school, and, or, or the parent of these students, what would you have to say to them as they encourage education and which direction they ought to be going? Is that a fair question to ask? I think it's a it's a great question. I, I have three boys myself, um, two in college, and and then my youngest is a, a sophomore in high school right now. As I've been going through the world of AI and automation, and in looking at the types of jobs that will be around, you know, it it just becomes ever more apparent that really AI, you know, it, it's not going to be at least in any time near future. Skynet, right? Terminator is not going to come in and take over the world and humans aren't going to be subservient to the great overlord machine. However, what will happen is these AI functions will make humans extremely efficient in what we do. And 
what as a student and, and even a younger worker, what you need to be is the person who's capable, who's learned the philosophies and the concepts, who's capable to be able to make a judgment decision on why a certain result is better. That's one thing AI really can't do. If you take machine learning at its, at its core, you need large data sets of similar type of decision processes to create the classification engine that Greg was talking about. Well, in business, as an example, or in product invention or development, you don't have that data set. So you can try a lot of things and the AI will help you do that quickly and you can rule out things, but you need the human there to actually be creative and to be able to make that judgment to new opportunities. So for all of the young kids, when you're studying in school, although memorization is always important, really what's most important is understanding the why. And, and I, that's what I, I tell my kids and we'll find out in 10, 20 years if I've been successful or not today, who knows. But ultimately, it's all about the why. Why does a certain piece of technology work a certain way? Why does this process in business work this way? And if they know the why, then they will be able to utilize AI to make them even better and then be leaders of the next generation. Greg and Steve, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Well, um, STEM, as you indicated, is the focus of the Arizona Technology Council's foundation. And uh, uh, we call it the SciTech Institute. And uh, we have a whole array of programs that we run. We started the SciTech Festival 10 years ago and hundreds of thousands of people participate in it here in Arizona. Um, and um, the most exciting thing uh, I think that we've done is we created a program called the Chief Science Officers. And uh, it's kids in grades six through 12. And um, if the school uh, buys into the CSO program and there are 113 school districts in Arizona that participate, uh, they have to run an election between grades six through 12. And um, the, the student that's elected in their grade becomes the STEM advocate in their class and the community liaison for their class around all things STEM. We uh, run them through training. Uh, we connect them together. Uh, they have all kinds of projects and assignments they do. Uh, that program has been so successful and so scalable that it's now in 10 other states and six other countries. Our goal, we just did strategic planning recently, is that every student in the world has access, every soul in the world has access to, to STEM learning. Uh, and as James so aptly pointed out, it's going to be necessary, right? Because there are there won't be anything but technology companies anymore. And, um, you know, we need the people who are going to uh, develop the necessary skills and talent to be able to develop the next generation of technology. So it's critical to our members. You can see how well that sort of doves, dovetails into what the Tech Council does. And uh, I'd really love to hear Greg's ideas on that too. So I think one of the questions that uh, was posed here in, you know, prior to this discussion was on job displacement or job, what's going to happen to the workforce, et cetera. Back in the middle of last century, there were these, you know, there was the idea that we were going to get the 30-hour work week and et cetera, because, you know, automation was going to displace all sorts of people, et cetera. Well, 
we all know that didn't happen. In fact, people, instead of getting uh, being able to work less, uh, you know, the, all sorts of new jobs, et cetera, were, were, you know, were, were generated to sort of help this automation along. Well, the same thing, I believe, is going to happen here. But those jobs are going to shift, as James and you have been saying, to you know, sort of technology-based activities. And so you're going to have to be you're going to have to understand those that that technology, and therefore it's really critical that all the way from grade school up that uh, kids get exposed to computing and uh, programming, et cetera. And and you know there's some neat things going on out there. Um, I've seen uh, I won't mention names, but companies that are providing toys that really kind of help you learn to program, and you don't really realize you're doing it, but you're playing along, et cetera. Um, and uh, at the at the college level. You know, the most sought-after degree now at, say, Princeton is computer science. And so we're beginning to see the shift, which is nice. When I graduated, people, I mean, I wanted to go into, into engineering. I, I went to Bates College in Maine, which is an, under, it's an undergraduate. It's a liberal arts college, and we didn't even have a computer. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I was always uh, somebody that liked to tinker with things, et cetera. And I decided, you know, I had a math degree. I'm going to go change that to an engineering degree. And I you know, lots of friends that were like, well, why are you doing that? What the hell would you want to do that for? Well, it's one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the future generations are going to have to do that as well. Well, the neat shift I've seen, as I just mentioned, Princeton, is that it's happening, that the demands, the supply and demand is actually beginning to catch up. For a while, it didn't. People still didn't want to become engineers and the like. It's changing, though. It's, it's so obvious now to kids that uh, technology is critical that you're seeing demand for computer science and things like that. And I think that's really healthy. Anyway, so I think the transformation is occurring, but yeah, at the, at the lower grade levels, we just have to uh, introduce more technology and make sure that, that all the students become as technology savvy as possible. Um, and then they can use that. If you're artistic, you can use that technology as you generate art and all these other things, et cetera. It just has to become sort of a, a part of your uh, daily routines and life and et cetera. There are some examples of that uh, in K through 12. Um, um, the Phoenix School System has a coding academy, for instance, and I've been mentoring a boy for a number of years who uh, graduated from the coding academy, and now he's at GCU. And uh, so, you know, the, and there are um, there's programs like in Paradise Valley, the Crest program, which is focused on uh, bioscience, uh, computing, and uh, maybe engineering. And uh, so, you know, there are examples in the in the K through 12 area as well. And as parents of those kids that age, uh, and our teachers for that matter, having been a teacher myself, who had more of a liberal arts stance, right? I was great at writing, great at reading and speaking, but uh, really struggled in science and math and all the, the STEM. Uh, but I've made it my goal and mission with my two adult kids and my, my youngest to find those opportunities for learning uh, because I, I, I wasn't able to help them, but keeping that in front of them. And, and I think what I see Kelly and, and Dr. Babendor doing with SciTech Institute with the help of Arizona Technology is having those conversations, uh, that building that ecosystem, right, among the universities, the businesses, 
the um, the elementary schools, middle schools, our community, our lawmakers, everybody. Let's all ha- continue to have these conversations so that we are not left at a deficit uh, as technology continues to increase and enhance. We got to make sure that our workforce is ready and and prepared for that. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and you may not believe it's already been an hour, so I'll have to wrap up the call. Maybe Greg and, and James are saying, thank goodness, right? <laughs> but we, we are <laughs> so, been oh, it, it's been a lot of fun. So appreciative of each of you being here. We'll ask in just a moment for you to, um, you know, again, say who you are, the role that you play at the business you're with, and, and where we can find you, of course. Uh, and Stephen, I know you always like to thank our guests and, and share a little something before we go out, so I'll let you do that first. Greg and James, thank you. I thought that was a fabulous conversation. I think it'll be very interesting to our our viewers today. And uh, can't thank you enough for all you're doing uh, in the tech industry and support uh, the ecosystem and appreciate you being here today. So Greg, if you could please start for us, just uh, who you are, the company that you represent and and where we all, I think we can all find Intel, but Intel Labs tells, tells where we can stay in touch with you as well. So, uh, yeah, Greg Leeming, and uh, I work for Intel Labs. I mean, that's our technology, our research wing, and oversee research within academia that involves artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles. And uh, as part of that, because Intel is a member of the Institute of Automated Mobility, I have also taken on the role as the technical director for that organization. And you're asking what for? Well, intel.com, right? We know that. We, I think that's, it's, Intel's everywhere, at least in, in my world. And then are you on LinkedIn? If someone were curious and-, and I'm on LinkedIn. And so, yes, you can great, contact me there. All right. And I'd be happy to answer questions, et cetera. You bet. Wonderful, Greg. Thank you. And AdvyNow Medical, James Bates, uh, tell us the website. And, and uh, I know you're hiring as well. I think I saw that, that you guys are still looking for some teammates. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that as we phase out? Sure. So AdvyNow Medical, um, we are AdvyNow.com, A-D-V-I-N-O-W. So it, the name comes from Advise Now Medical. So AdvyNow dot com. And uh, we're on LinkedIn. We're on the corner of Scottsdale and Shea. So we're very local here in in Scottsdale, uh, Arizona, and we are hiring. So if you are an expert programmer, either in Python or Angular, um, we are always looking for good guys. Um, so, So from that standpoint, it's a eternal hiring type of opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and as you grow, obviously you'll need you'll need more uh, experts helping you out. Uh, if I can ask Greg and James to stay with us after we go off air, I forgot to mention. I think I've had so many shows today, I can't remember. But we'll we'll have a proper opportunity to say goodbye and take a couple photos before we let you get on with your day. You've been listening to AZ TechCast, brought to you by Phoenix Business Radio. And today's AZ TechCast was also brought, by, brought to you by Arizona Commerce Authority, the state's leading economic development organization with a streamlined mission to grow and strengthen Arizona's economy. We always want to thank Arizona Commerce Authority for this opportunity. And also many thanks to JDH Insights, the 2020 Tech Advocate Sponsor. Visit jdhinsights.com to enhance leadership and improve team dynamics to take your business to the next level. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast as a participant or a sponsor for the council's AZ TechCast, please contact marketing at aztech.com 
excuse me, at aztechcouncil.org to lock in your opportunity to further position you as a tech, ex, excuse me, tech expert, influencer, and innovator. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean business. Until next time, it's Karen Nowicki. Happy holidays, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.